0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with writer, producer, and actor Mindy Kaling. Here's a little trivia. Both Mindy Kaling and I were cartoonists for our college newspapers, but only one of us went to Dartmouth. Right, that was her. And only one of us has played the role of Ben Affleck to rave stage reviews. Oddly enough, that was her too. So I guess it probably follows that she's also the one that was hired as the only female writer on The Office at age 24 and was eventually made the boss of her own TV show, The Mindy Project. Ever since she started writing scripts on her mom's typewriter at age six, Mindy planned to be a comedy writer. And she didn't mess around. After eight hours of high school and five more of homework, it was time to study Conan and Saturday Night Live. In college, free time was spent in theaters with a notebook. Then she wrote a crazy play that got her a ticket to Hollywood and one of the best writing gigs around. She had it made, on paper anyway. In our talk, Mindy shared the ups, downs, and frequent loneliness of her early career. I think you'll be inspired by how she found her own voice and how she's used it to topple some of our longest standing notions about comedy. If you confuse her with the characters she plays, you could get the impression she's a bit wild or maybe even superficial. It's an understandable mistake, but one you'll never make after this conversation. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hello, Mindy. Hi, Sam. How are you? Really good. You know, I met you in 2007, briefly. Mm. Okay. Because I was going to direct an episode of The Office. And I think it was season three. And I went and I did like the table read, and I went to an edit session, and I hung out with greg daniels and shadowed him and i met you you were like super nice to me oh thank god you were so nice i was just
1: waiting i was like and then you were so rude to me yeah i'm you, so happy that you had was me nice. thrown
0: off the lot
1: I'm no so you were really
0: nice and then the writer strike happened mm-hmm. and i think for like nine months the entire tv industry went away right it was like forever yeah and sort of things got shuffled around that i never ended up and never ended up doing it and I always thought like when I saw your episode on the Mindy Project, your sliding doors episode, mm-hmm. I thought there's another life where you and I are really good friends.
1: Because <laughs> we met through, or you tried to direct me and I was a monster. Right. So it could have been, right. been good that we never met.
0: There's a sliding doors where I had to take out a restraining order yeah. on you. Yeah. No, but uh, that was like almost 10 years ago. So I'm sorry for the 10 years that we we, we didn't could have, have We could have had,
1: we can make it up here. Yeah, the, let's make the, it up here. Yeah, um, the strike was so weird. I was just thinking about that.
0: Did I you was, think that you might not have a job? Like, or, or that things would change so much that it w- like, the show wouldn't come back?
1: No, you know, I think we had, it was after season two. Right. So we had done 24 episodes. And at that time, we, I think we just won the Emmy for Best Comedy. So I think, if anything, we were like, at least for me, because I wrote and acted on that, I remember being like, ooh, a little break. Is my feeling. And at that time, NBC didn't have like a lot that was working. So they oh, were right. like churn out episodes. So we had this, I was like, I thought the strike, I'm this really strong minority here. I a little bit enjoyed the strike because for me, I was like, I'm in a union. I get to demand my rights. And like, I, you know, I never, I'd only, you know, been in the Writers Guild for a couple of years prior right. to that. But I do remember feeling like it was important, though, if you'd asked me Exactly what the strike was about. I would have been like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> something
0: regarding contracts and the in, internet and in
1: digital residuals yeah. uh, in perpetuity for something very aggressively boring.
0: Well, but important. I, I think that it, you know, for for people like me that that did a lot of commercial directing and and photography and everything at that time, it wasn't such a great thing because so much production just shut down.
1: Oh no, I mean it. To not make money for eight months, nine months was horrible. Yeah. And uh, the effects of which, I mean, there's so many promising shows that got canceled during that time. and
0: So many promising directors that, so many didn't, promising directors direct that didn't things. Yes, yeah. yeah. You and I have something in common. We both were cartoonists at our college paper. Were you really? I was, I was at Gonzaga University, and okay. I was the political cartoonist.
1: Okay, so that's very classy. I. It wasn't that classy. Well, the fact that it's political, the fact that you were in an undergraduate and we're like I have enough strong opinions about this that I would can write something I mean I think that's cool well it
0: was Reagan it wasn't that hard to come up <laughs> with stuff it was just I could draw him and that was half the battle
1: that's still huge I couldn't draw it at all I just was I was at Dartmouth and there's so few people interested in comedy there but they have spots for comic spaces in their their newspapers. So my friend, Jake, who's the editor-in-chief, was like, do you want to draw something? And I was like, I can't draw at all. And he's like, just, like, own it. So um, I did that for a couple of years.
0: Well, I looked at some strips, and, and what was amazing is even at that age, your voice is in there. Really? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I guess I wonder if when you were in college, you were kind of searching for that, or, or, or if you were just trying to find any outlet for comedy at that time.
1: I think in high school, I remember discovering like Saturday Night Live and watching that on Comedy Central when they would just right. show like endless episodes on loop and I remember thinking like that is so great and this is before you could record yourself on your phone or write sketches so when I got to college you know we still the idea of you can only be a TV writer by being a TV writer you can't really practice it that much this is back in like the mid 90s you couldn't right. really do that so when I was in college you still couldn't but I could do sketch comedy and I could write comedy for like the, so I was just trying to find something but I feel lucky that there is no taped material of me basically before the age of twenty four because <laughs> when you're trying to do that and you're trying to figure out your voice, there's so many missteps and cringeworthy things and yeah. like I'm humiliated that you even looked at my old comic strips but it's it's all valuable and it's good that it's out there but um god these I feel so i my heart goes out to young people because when they're you know putting up sketches on vine or youtube it's everyone gets it.
0: Yeah, and it's there forever. You're right. I mean, it's true. I think that missing a great portion of that in my life, too, growing up, um, you don't want to be accountable for everything. You do want to sort of workshop and woodshed in Mm -hmm. private and everything. But I think reading your books, because when I I, uh, found out you were coming on the show, I went and read your books, and I really liked your writing, and I really felt like and for, and I was a little offended because in the book it says it's not for me. It's not for the straight man.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like if
0: you're a gay man. No, this is very surprising woman.
1: hearing that you own them even. Or
0: yeah. Did and they think
1: it was weird at the bookstore? where They're like, you didn't mean to. No, because
0: I did electronic. Got it. Got so, it. And I think that what I took away from your style of writing is that you you have this ability to sort of write as a, as though you're writing to one person. You know what That's
1: I mean? That's so nice. Thank you.
0: Did you have a picture in your head of who you were writing to?
1: Truly, it's like I I think I was trying to write to my smartest and funniest friend that okay. I I think very highly of. And I I didn't I wasn't like writing down to someone, I was just trying to make them laugh, um and think I was cool, but in that way with someone that you that you are very close to. And I think uh, the nicest compliment I get is that when people read my book that they think that they're my best friend. It's something I hear the most frequently and it's the kind of the nicest compliments. But I like when people read the books because you can see how different I really am than the character I play on my show.
0: Right. Well, there's definitely an element of that where where you get the sense reading the book that it's important for you to express those differences, like yeah. like, I feel like the subtext of your of some of those chapters are that you're misunderstood quite a bit.
1: Huh. Like
0: people assume that you are your characters,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and maybe more so than some guy on a show. Definitely,
1: right? I definitely think that. Yeah,
0: And that must be weird because I mean, to some extent, every artist probably feels misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And, but does part of that come from the frustration of you can't control that, you can't control what someone takes in, you can only.
1: I think, especially when you are a show creator, I think I didn't help myself, but my show's my character's name is Mindy as well, which was actually not my decision. It was the decision of uh, the head of Fox at the time who thought it felt more immediate. And because I so badly wanted the show to be in there, I was like, sure, she can have my same name. But she wasn't called Mindy at the beginning. And then oh, it really? Would, yeah, she was, what was her name? Her name was Mira, which I was like, oh, it's Indian, but it's also... Easy to pronounce, and people, you know, it's close enough that it's not shocking to hear someone call me that. But um, he wanted the character to be called Mindy, and at the time, it was one of those things where if I really sit and think about this and what that will mean, I will not want to do it. But like TV, we were talking about this earlier, it's like you don't have that time to <laughs> think about it. You're just like, right. sure, whatever it's going to take to get it on there. And the ramifications of that are huge to allow a character that you play, that you write, be called your first name it's a sort of a tacit uh, endorsement of the idea that you're the same person. And so I don't get angry with people when they think I'm the same as the character. I'm just surprised because of uh how wild she is.
0: Right. And obviously there're extreme elements that of course, but mm-hmm. I can see that like like you take Jerry Seinfeld as a classic example. Mm-hmm. I think that people sort of go okay, it's based on his life. It's He's a comedian on the show. Is like it's easy for people to go. That's exactly who Jerry Seinfeld is.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think, and I think the difference is obviously that I think I am. It's almost the opposite. Like my character on the show is is like. Of course, I want to play that character because she says the craziest stuff. She is incredibly uninhibited. The clothes she wears. It's, I mean, just right. her whole lifestyle is so exciting. Um, and I'm a like a boring comedy writer who who goes home and watches like six hours of Narcos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. You know, throughout my life, I have gone through periods where I've done therapy for various reasons. I remember in my 20s when I was first trying to find a therapist, I was literally looking in the phone book and cold calling, and I ended up finding somebody that, you know, was across town and it took me an hour to drive there and I knew nothing and and it was a very difficult, you know, blind leading the blind sort of situation to try to find a therapist that could help you. Well, with BetterHelp, the whole system has changed. And what BetterHelp does is they offer licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help. And you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, including anxiety, grief, depression, relationship conflicts. And they can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. I wish I would have had this a long time ago because I'm the first one to say if things aren't working out and if you can't figure something out or if you feel stuck, you got to find some help. So here's what you do. You fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. Then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus you can exchange unlimited messages. And of course, everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you are unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. So join the one million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of experienced BetterHelp counselors. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option, and for our listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with the discount code CAMERA. So, if you need some help, if you need someone to talk to, try BetterHelp Online Counseling. Get started today at betterhelp.com camera. You can talk to a therapist online and get help. Now, back to the show. So when you were sort of figuring out comedy, you know, when you were sitting at home going, "Hmm, what is the?" Because I assume at one point it dawned on you that, "Oh, someone's writing the words that are coming mm-hmm. out of people's mouths," right? Like, how old were you when you figured that out?
1: I was always writing, even as a kid. My mom was a doctor, and in one of her little rooms at her office, there's just a typewriter in there. This is like pre-computers. When I was like six or seven, and I'd have to come after school and work there, and I either could bring a book or sit and write on the typewriter, and that was more fun. Um, so I, I was always, from a really young age, it like writing little like one-page plays and things. But um, in terms of, uh, I, I think it was really that kind of quintessential time that most people get into comedy, which is like 12, 13, 14. Yeah. And I wasn't good at sports. I you know, wasn't that, I was good at school, but wasn't excited really by school yet. In, in high school, I got a little more interested. But I just loved when I was sick and could go, Turn on Comedy Central, and just watch like hours of stand-up and and sketch shows, and just soak it all in. I just what loved was it. the
0: show that really got you?
1: It's weirdly there's a show called Dr. Katz Professional Therapist, which yeah. was an animated show that uh, starred um, Jonathan Katz, the stand-up, and he's from Boston. And he would interview. The premise was that he was a therapist. he would interview stand-ups, and you'd have Sarah Silverman and Louis C.K. And this is early '90s, '92, '93. And I just loved the format of it. And I've, even though I could never do stand-up and I'm really terrified of it, I, I just sort of became enamored of that. And I sort of started being like, okay, what is this? And I'd research as much as I could about all the different stand-ups. And I'd read about like Emo Phillips and Carol Leifer and all these people that were really big.
0: Did you want to be a stand-up for a while?
1: I didn't want to be a stand-up, but I remember thinking, I like that each of them has like a, like a really interesting, funny rant. Like they have a take on things that they have fully formed hilarious opinions. That they, they have practiced in front of friends maybe right. pacing in their house. And I just thought I understood I that's when I kind of figured out like what the, the polish the, their polish and um and just became really interested in that. Uh although I didn't want to actually be a stand-up. I was like, I would I want to write and then Conan was huge for me. Right. When I was fourteen and Conan O'Brien started, I was like, this is the expression of, like, who I am. The way I think some people felt about Letterman, like, you know, generation before, that his antics was, like, exactly what they were interested in. He was Conan's interview style and his sketch style was, like, expressing completely, like, what I thought was cool and funny.
0: Were you allowed to stay up that late to watch Conan? I
1: was, you know, because I was, at that point, I was in high school and I was such a nerd that I was usually... I mean, like, I'd go to school until, like, six a night, then do homework for five hours. Like, I became, like, really hardcore. Like, just never slept. Yeah, I was just, like, a huge, like, such a good little student. And so, usually by the time I finished my homework, Conan was on. And I'd watch, like, the tail end of The Tonight Show. And then that would come on. And I just, it was... It was he was such a like rock star to me and kind of still is I mean he's so amazing but.
0: yeah well did your parents understand like that world at all or did you express like this is what I want to do?
1: I think they didn't uh, they didn't know the world that, at all because we don't have that on either side of our family but my parents loved comedy. they loved Seinfeld they loved like uh, Nichols and May they loved listening to recordings of like you know Jerry Seinfeld at like, Carnegie Hall and Long family trips to like Virginia Beach or Niagara Falls and we were like in the car for eight hours. They just really loved comedy and watching uh, Cheers and Seinfeld on Thursday nights was a huge part of our experience, like shared experience as a family, which is interesting because they're both immigrants, but they just just loved it too. I guess that's how like universally powerful they are. So I think they thought it was a cool thing for me to be interested in.
0: I mean, clearly you didn't go off to LA to try to a stand-up or something. You went to a a major literary school. You went to Dartmouth. and Mm -hmm. Because of your upbringing and everything, did you have sort of a plan B or did you think I could do other things too?
1: Yeah, I always wanted to be a comedy writer. Once, like around 13, 14 when I knew that you could do that, that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that all through college. Um, I think it was college was fun because I could do lots of, I could perform in lots of different things, like in sketches and I sang a little bit. But I always knew the back of my mind, like, all I wanted to be doing was, like, just writing comedy. Um, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know that really New York is not the place. L.A. is the place. So I went to New York because it was kind of closer. Right. But, yeah, my little group of friends, uh, they all sort of wanted to perf- do performing as well, but they did None of them wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do, but we would put on, like, I had friends that were actors and musicians, so we'd put on little shows. I would write them, they would act in them, we would add music, and what was great about Dartmouth was there's literally nothing to do in Hanover, New Hampshire, so it gave me this really inflated sense of confidence that I got, just because everyone was like, this is the only ticket in town, so we'd have these packed theaters to see these... Terrible little like you know night of one act plays or sketch shows or whatever of these half baked ideas um, and music that we just you know written the day before, but there was nothing else to do in Hanover except for uh, drink and go sledding, which you could only do so much. So it was great. I felt like share.
0: It's <laughs> like a vest. Well, how did you how did you teach yourself? Like, did you start like watching with the idea of I'm going to break this yeah, down? Yeah, and-
1: it's like obsessive mimicry. I think when you're a teenager, the kind of um, where I, I always felt like was so funny because I couldn't focus on anything as much as I could focus on comedy. Really? Like, well, yeah, and I, I, I was like any young person where like, I, I, you know, I, I would think even like you know, ninety minute college classes were like so tedious for me and everything, but I could sit and write down like. Every line of a fish called Wanda, or something like that—a movie that I loved—and just sort of study it. And uh, again, this is like the sort of the late '90s before all these—you have access to like every script. You can get the script of The Apartment online, and you can just read it and study it. So I have all these memories of just like taking a notebook into movie theaters and just like writing down great lines I loved or notions I would have. But um, yeah, the reason I, I, the way I learned it, because I don't, I didn't take any TV writing classes at Dartmouth, I don't even think they offer them, was just uh, by like watching with, with like a real obsessive eye.
0: So you would write down in the theater lines that you liked and like Turns go figure of out. Like,
1: or setups that I liked. How the setup work? Yeah, or callbacks. Like the idea right. is like, oh, you know, like this is great in the apartment where they're, they're bringing, they call back that line that they said earlier, but I didn't like know that that's what it was called. So, I just sort of was educated by massive consumption of things. The way that, like, you know, when you're 19, and you can watch like five movies yes. in a day, yes. and it's normal. Whereas now, if you did that, you'd be like, "Oh, that's a, like a depressed person with like serious problems, like who can stay in a, in one room and put like VHS tape after VHS right. tape." And I would watch like, the, I'd sit in my room, just like eat pizza, uh, in my little Dartmouth dorm room, and I would just pop in VHS tapes, like Woody Allen tapes that I'd like sent away for because i just wanted to see what they were all like and you know and i learned i kind of learned more from the ones that weren't popular than i did from like the most popular ones
0: it reminds me of someone like getting a computer and then taking it apart to find out how it works like <laughs> did you did you try to figure out like why comedy worked on you or, or, or like at that time were you going that's funny to me and that's not and trying to figure out why
1: yeah or like i would look at something and i would know how it was widely regarded and then i'd watch it and go i wonder why this isn't working and i remember thinking um I, that's when i really learned a lot about like relatability uh-huh. and why in annie hall um even though those characters like you know they're all like extremely wealthy the movie isn't really about How they really are, you feel like, oh, I'm like Annie Hall. She doesn't have a lot of money. She lives like in a little apartment. And then some of the ones that he's like, everyone says I love you is that they live in this like four floors of a townhouse in the Upper East Side. And how you're like a little bit detached from it because you're like, oh, I don't have a ballroom at my house. And I started learning like, oh, that's because in one movie, like Woody Allen has kind of kind of uh, put up like reveal like put up a little wall, which which is his like insane wealth it's relatable to him but not to me and so I'd be like that's that's really fascinating I, I don't know so I would just like learn little tricks uh, and short write them down and try to apply it to my own writing
0: so at what point did you say okay I'm going to write like a real project start to finish and like did you write a spec script or did you write no
1: I mean in, in, so when I was in I also then the next thing is like well, what do I have to say Right.
0: right. Well, right. that's the voice part, right? Right. You right. just
1: can't just, like, decide you want to, you know, because that's the worst thing I've ever seen, which is just, like, a fifth-rate Conan O'Brien, a fifth-rate Woody Allen, you know, the, and and I feel, even though I probably never, like, articulated this to myself, that I really want whatever I have to say to be different. Yeah. Um, and so for a while, it was, like, you know, and my, around that time, it was, like, what you're supposed to do is write spec scripts. So when I was 22... Uh, I think I wrote a spec script of Arrested Development, and I love that show, and it was great. But even then, I was like, oh, "Wouldn't it be like? Wouldn't I stick out more like if I wrote something that was like a little bit weirder and offbeat?" And from from just, I I did this play in New York City called Matt and Ben. Yeah,
0: so I want I wanted to ask you about which is, that. Which yeah.
1: is extremely was extremely offbeat, and and, and we should
0: say it was it was you and your friend.
1: My friend Brenda. your
0: friend brenda. and and
1: I played Ben Affleck, and my friend Brenda played Matt Damon in a really absurd fifteen minute, like not even an hour long play.
0: Right, where where Goodwill Hunting the script falls a, from his ceiling. A script falls ceiling. through
1: the sky from the ceiling. Right, like, yeah.
0: and, and it's sort of that moment where you get to see these two figuring out what to do with this gift they've been given from the creative gods. Tell me if I, I got this right, but it started out with the two of you just doing Matt and Ben impressions to each other to yeah. amuse each other, right? just
1: like what we thought like the, the media was so fixated on them in a way that was almost like they were a famous married couple, like, that was just sort of what you were told was what you were supposed to be obsessed with. Right. And we just thought, like, these are actual friends. Like, they actually grew up together. They weren't, like, you know, they, they did to like, meet each other at 24 and decide to, like, become famous by, like, pretending to be friends. And we thought, what a funny thing to have gone through as a pair of friends. And we were two sort of unfamous old, old friends. And we just thought these, we, we kind of made up personalities for the two of them based on just Kind of what we thought would be funny, as a flight of fancy. And I mean, that's one thing I really liked about my friend Brenda was we. These were not like attractive, like for two women to play. Like these were not like they weren't like cute characters. Like we were playing guys. Right. And it wasn't like a thing you could see and be like, oh, she's like hot or she's pretty or something. It was just it was just hard comedy. And later, now looking back on it, I think like wow, most girls that age who are trying to like break into TV and film like they don't put on track suits right. and put, to tie their hair up, wear right. no makeup and wear baseball caps and play guys with like, you know, I was in this play, I'm like manspreading the entire time <laughs> and not wearing any makeup and it was um, such a fun, it was completely unflattering, but it, the way we looked really unflattering, but just such a fun, real thing that just nobody was doing or understood and was like, at a certain point, kind of was, like, not really about those two guys at all, but just became this whole, like, hey, like, come with us. We're in a 99-seat theater in the East Village. Like, just suspend your disbelief. And the fact that it worked was, like, such a fun little triumph, of like, downtown theater and, like, absurdity and stuff. And
0: What's fascinating to me, though, is the, the way... It, it grew organically out of your friendship. like mm-hmm. I, And I wondered if that process, the way you guys started doing the voices mm-hmm. and doing it back and forth to each other, if that became part of your writing process that because it worked the first time.
1: I have not until this moment thought of that, but I think you're really right. Like if that whole play, I mean, it was also incredibly interesting to us as two best friends who were trying to we're both trying to be writer performers right and we would do it in new york downtown which is just full of people trying to do the very same thing but the talking to each other and just saying writing down what we would say which made the other one laugh um first of all it's a really strange way to write because you are both performing but then also being an editor at the same time but it was great when we would do it together because we we'd such a shorthand that um she could say that was great and write down what I had said and vice versa. And then after a while, we'd be like, you know, it'd be fun to put these characters in a situation as this situation. And we be like, let's just try it. So the two of us would sit and, you know, it would be, you know, Matt and Ben, Kevin come back from the gym and one of them was like outran the other by whatever amount and like how that would how the two characters would feel with that and how they would try to protect their egos and whatnot so it it was just like so much fun in the kind of way that you can only do when you don't have a job and you're like 21 years old and can sit and like fuck around for like four hours pretending to be these two famous men
0: yeah but but at some point i'm sure one of you must have said we should we should do this publicly, right? At some point yeah it, got
1: it became before we decided we would do it publicly, we we're like, let's see, can we can we write this down? Maybe they're not Matt and Ben anymore. Maybe they're just two people, right? Like in a play. And so we would write down because the characters became so specific every time we would imp- improvise them. And it's like, well, maybe we can just do something with two characters. We'll change their names, and this is just their dynamic. But what we realized was it was the most fun with them because you sort of, while you're picturing like, for instance, my friend Brenda acting it as a woman, the specter of Matt Damon was always around, which was just really enjoyable. And with me, if you think of me, I'm 5'4", and I'm an Indian woman, it's like knowing that I'm playing Ben Affleck the entire time when people would see it was like, they're like, I can't explain it. You look nothing like him. You're not doing an impression of him like a Saturday Night Live impression. It's just like you're embodying him in a way that is just thinking about him And the other side of your brain while you're watching this is just fun and so we just were like oh let's just keep it and like to be honest like if we had been if it had been two women it would have felt mean-spirited.
0: Right plus the whole audience has their own version of this story in their head of Matt and Ben.
1: Right and we just thought like this is it's just felt like weird and funny but it was it was strange how popular it was and um, my god, it was so fun to do. It was so fun to act.
0: <laughs> well, what's interesting is that most people if they want to be writer-performers, I would assume they would start doing improv or they do stand-up at the places where Saturday Night Live talent scouts occasionally mm-hmm. go and look and why, and maybe not sit down and write their own avant-garde play. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Well,
1: the truth was that we were trying to go to all those cool places um, but they were not that welcoming. I mean, the the atmosphere is very different then. I mean, 2001 to 2004, I, I don't think was the same. Uh, I didn't think you had the same feeling about embracing even the little comedy theaters and things, about embracing, like, an Indian woman into the comedy world. Like, when I would go to different comedy theaters and prop theaters downtown New York, it was ver- like, all white. Um, right. And now, even when I was at the office and the office had run for a couple of years, uh, it had even gotten so much better. But we tried, it just, there was not, uh, I remember we submitted the play to a really popular uh, comedy theater in New York and they didn't even respond to it. We were like, we like to put it up? And we never even got like a response back from them, even telling us that it was like rejected. Really? Yeah, no, I mean, completely for years just, um, and it's a very, it's like a funny play. I don't even know if they read it.
0: That's so funny because, yeah. you know, uh, you think about that time and and like you said, not having a job and sitting around and doing this. Mm-hmm. It must have been like a perfect recipe for pure art, though, because you're not you're you're not thinking we're going to put this on and we're going to get pilot offers and you just, you couldn't think that way, right?
1: No, we didn't. And luckily for us, uh, we didn't even know that that was the path. You know, that someone could come and give you like a pilot from it. We did think it, we we knew you know, as entrepreneurial young people that like this would get attention and maybe that could lead to, I don't know, maybe Brenda would get hired in some funny play and I could maybe get, I could find out how you would even know someone who you could write a packet to write for SNL, you know, like, or something like right. that. But we didn't know enough to uh, strategize so completely. Right. Yeah. So it was good.
0: So you did get a pilot offer mm-hmm. from Matt and Ben. Yeah. And what happened? Did the
1: so when I first when we first came out to LA, we were doing that play, and um, from that, from doing the show here for a couple of months, we I got two opportunities. The first was to do a show based on our lives, me and my, Brenda's and my my life, in a, and do like an autobiographical play. i um, a TV show uh, called Mindy and Brenda, and what they wanted was like two broke girls. I think right um, right which is not like our skill set at all. Uh, but in th- but this, in the second job opportunity that came is Greg Daniels saw the play and hired me to be a writer on The Office.
0: So you already hired on that?
1: The pilot came first. So if okay. the pilot had gone, I would have had to quit working on The Office. But the, so while I was working, um, while I started writing on The Office, I was, always, I was also working on a pilot with my friend Brenda. And then the pilot got shot with two other actors, uh, two other actresses.
0: Playing you guys?
1: Playing two characters named Mindy and Brenda. So how did
0: they give you that news?
1: In like the worst, most drawn out way. I mean, I I consider, now I can look back on it and consider myself lucky that at 24, I had like one of the most traumatizing experiences you could have as a writer-performer in LA, which is that you create something for yourself to star in and named after you, and you audition for it and are not cast in that role. You,
0: you audition for yourself and they're like, sorry, we think we can find a better Mindy.
1: Yeah, and to be honest, I think they probably did. I mean, you know, when you when you don't know the pilot process at all and you're working on right. a pilot, I think um, we'd never done it before. We'd never written a pilot before. And I don't think it's that good. I think it's like, I think it. Uh, you have your voice, so what made Matt and Ben funny and good was that it was just like, our undiluted voice. Now, you could never put that on TV because it was like 15 minutes long and weird and whatever, but uh, it was really authentic and super funny and when you're doing a pilot for the WB, which is a network that's no longer on the air, yeah. whose entire lineup, le- weekly lineup, is just good-looking soap opera actors playing vampires. Right. Like, we didn't understand like why they wouldn't want like our like lower east side sensibility to you, the show. You thought
0: you could take that intact and, and put it on the W. And put it
1: on there and just say, like, okay, well, we're not playing these two crazy characters anymore. But certainly if they came to our show and liked our show, they want that sensibility.
0: Right. And they
1: don't. Now, I look now at, like, something like Broad City, which is just so them. And I'm like, oh, man, like, we would have been so excited to watch that show. Yeah. But that didn't exist in 2004.
0: Right.
1: And at least we would have been so lucky had that been on because A, we would have loved it and I love that show but also because it was not, you know, two girls trying to, like, start a cupcake company. Right, Um, right. And so, yeah, like, we didn't want it to be multicam and they kind of forced us to make it a multicam comedy and all these things that we were like, we'll do whatever to just get our show on the air. And then when we weren't cast in it, um, I think we were like, oh, okay, as much as this is a huge blow to our ego and it was, I mean... It was also like, well, this bears so little resemblance to what we wanted to do that it's not that terrible. But
0: you got to think that it's just amazing that you would write your first play, have it not only kill in New York, but also travel, mm-hmm. and then get an opportunity to write on The Office and get your own pilot. Like it's, it's kind of amazing that you just, you just sort of made your own success very quickly
1: when you say it like that it makes me I'm like whoa I'm cool as hell That's that yeah. really no, cool you are. I it was so there's so much heartache at that time because I remember it's like it's so nice thinking back on it but like the experience of the pilot was I have like mental scars forever I mean like I think later I wrote the I think I was part of the reason I was happy to play a character named Mindy on my show was like see like fuck you I finally can play a character named Mindy like that I create.
0: I am good enough to be me.
1: (laughs) And the other thing was on The Office that first season like everybody hated it and everyone was so hard on it so it was like this year and a half of like oh I everything I'm doing is just like not working out. So it felt like you were failing. As much as I was feeling accepted I mean I was making like $500 a week doing that play in New York City but I felt like it, like I owned the city because of how well received it was and I didn't really have any expenses anyway, so it was fine. And then to come and do this stuff, which on paper, everyone's like, whoa, pilot, you're working on a network show? And then both are, one is, rejects you. Your own bad pilot rejects you. And then The Office, which I thought was brilliant and great. like People were just pummeling. Um, luckily, our second season, things turned around. But I remember being like, I hope I don't have to move home. <laughs> so
0: you, you thought that, like, you could have had your shot and blown it. Like, that's how it felt. Yeah, I wasn't,
1: I, I wasn't sure. I mean, we did six episodes of the first season, so I could, I couldn't even say that I had done, like, 13 episodes of a show. I could prove that I was, like, a comedy writer even, you know, to go staff on another show or something.
0: But you're also in this totally new environment. Like, talk about your relationship at the beginning with Greg Daniels mm-hmm. and how long it took you to sort of get on solid ground or equal ground where you didn't feel like... Because like, you must have been nervous at the time. Oh, start, I'm, right? and
1: I'm still nervous around Greg because, I mean, he's a genius. So I I still, and he's not only he's a genius, he's, and he he might say he's neurotic. He does not um, project neuroses. He's very easy with a long pause. Um, he's very thoughtful, and in in the middle of him making a point, he's fine taking like 15 to 20 seconds to make sure that it's exactly worded the right way. Whereas I'm the opposite. I'm like, uh, I don't want to like, I feel like I'm always like tap dancing and speaking really quickly and things. But um, the first season was incredibly exciting because I was so impressed by the talent of the other writers. It was Mike Schur and BJ Novak and Paul Lieberstein and, and Greg Daniels. But I was also, and I think that they would be they would be okay with me making this, they're not the friendliest guys at all. <laughs> and they had like four of them had gone to Harvard and worked, worked on the Lampoon. And I was the youngest and I was the staff writer that right. came from New York that had no TV experience. And I remember this so well. I remember Mike Scher, who is now a great friend and has created so many awesome shows and everything, invited BJ to a Dodgers game. It was like a Red Sox-Dodgers game, like in the in the writer's room of like six people. And I remember feeling like so left out. Being I mean like, oh, so this is the old boys club that they always tell you about. Right. And I'm witnessing it. It was very exciting, but I was also, like, friendless and living in a terrible apartment on Fountain that cost, like, $800 a month that was covered in mold.
0: But that's that could be a lonely time, right?
1: So lonely. I remember being terrified and silent for most of the first season. Oh, really? But if you ask any of those guys, they were like, you were not terrified and silent at all. You were expressing your opinions loudly, constantly. So I guess there's what you feel, and then there's, like, how you express it, but... Yeah, I thought I was, like, very demure and not saying anything, but no one else seems to think I was.
0: When you found your stride, did you lose some of that terror? Did it, did it turn into, oh, I, I belong here? And
1: Well, I mean, if you ask any comedy writer, I think, on a show like that, because I was there for eight years, I felt, like, job security, like I was not going to probably get fired unless I did something horrible. But also, it was incredibly competitive, because everyone had their ambitions within the show, you know, right. get more screen time, get you know a ton of scripts, direct. Um, but then everyone had their ambitions outside of the show. So after after four seasons, I was like, Wow, well, I'm working really hard. And all of a sudden, you see like, Oh, Mike's creating Parks and Recreations, and you're like, Wait a second, am I supposed to be more ambitious than just this? Right. You know, am I supposed to be thinking more than just like coming here at six a.m. acting, you know, writing, leaving at ten o'clock every single night? Which
0: sounds like enough.
1: It sounds like enough. Yeah. And then you start feeling and I was content being like oh I should be doing that or and so that's sort of I felt like why in some ways I started getting interested in writing my books and thinking there's this world of the office which is so funny with so many funny characters is still pretty different than like what my natural voice is right and I've been trained in this you know to write a mockumentary for 8 years is like you get really trained in one specific like tr- trade, I was like a tradesman now in how to write mockumentary, but I thought I it's been a long time since I've just written like I <laughs> like yeah. I think this I think that and I'm a kind of like overtly girly like traditionally kind of girly woman that you know loves New York City and I'm and I love um, like fashion and romance and romantic comedies and I'm working on a show that is a romantic comedy but it's like a mockumentary in Scranton where what's beautiful is, like, the plain and unadorned. Yeah. And I'm not that. Right. And so my show is a real reaction to that in a lot of ways. But also my book, it was, I think, so different than The Tone of the Office.
0: What was the reason to, to sit down and write them?
1: Well, there was just so much left on the table after i would finish a week of shooting and working on the office which in many ways i mean i don't think everyone thinks this but i think that show is pretty masculine you know like steve was the star it was like michael scott and dwight and um the paper company and like everyone i just felt like you know with the exception of pam and obviously my character but like it was just a i thought it was a very funny workplace show that had a really male streak to it right and i I loved working for that show. I wrote like 25 episodes of the show, and I still think now, like, what would Michael Scott do? What would how would he talk about like Uber or Brexit or like all of right, that stuff? Right. Like, he's just such a funny character, um, and I think like a classic TV character. But I thought there's so much else that I love and want to write about, um, and some of it was like. Romantic comedy in New York City. Frankly, I I still felt homesick for New York even eight years into living here and having like what some would argue was the best comedy writing job in TV. Yeah. Also, I think I it's weird because I I got a Twitter account in like 2008, and I remember thinking, okay, well this I don't really have time to do focus a lot of energy on this, and I still feel that way about it. But the feedback I would get for just things that I would say or think about during the day. The amount of positive feedback and the way that people were were treating it, uh, responding to it, was so surprising to me that I was like, "Well, if people want to hear like these little tiny, like fragments of of, a, of what my life is like or what my point of view is like, they might be interested in um, more like essays." Right. And so the the confidence to write the first book of essays really came from people's reaction to my Twitter account. You know, like because when you're like number 12 on the call sheet at the office and like your writer you it's a big deal you know when I was like 28 to be like wow um, Entertainment Weekly said I was a Twitter account to follow you know like you right. feel because it's like not something where like if the people compliment the office it's like I can't Take the credit for the office, right? I, I, I'm, I think I'm helpful to it, but I'm. It's not like mine. And so when people would compliment my Twitter, I'd be like, "Mom, look, someone said my Twitter account was cool." It's like all me. I felt right, right. And so I thought that feeling got really addictive, you know. And I was like, "Oh, I want to do more." That's just me and my voice. I
0: think one thing that social media did that was positive, if if we could find one thing that's yeah. positive, is that it, it did sort of validate people's own voices. Yeah. You can instantly get feedback that I can totally be myself and people respond and, and I connect with people, right?
1: Absolutely, and it gives you, you know, you see people who are parts of things like different shows or maybe they're athletes or maybe they're news anchors or whatever, and you get to see a window and we know, especially if you're in the business, how much of it is artifice and just like writing for people. And when you see someone who's like authentically funny and they have something like that, it feels exciting, even for me. So Twitter was weirdly uh, very confidence-giving for me to to help develop my own voice.
0: Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Theragun. Now this is a perfect sponsor for our show because if you've listened to me at all, you know that I do some skateboarding, I ride some motorcycles, I crash motorcycles. Uh, So I've been using Theragun for a long time and I not only use it for, you know, therapy for sore muscles, but I also use it because I end up doing long car trips and my legs get tight and sore and the Theragun has been an amazing part of my life ever since I discovered it. I'll give you an example. The motocross track that I like to go to is about a two-hour car drive each way. So I get up at five in the morning, I drive all the way down there, I ride all day, which is pretty taxing, sometimes involves crashing, and certainly involves sore muscles, and then I drive all the way back, often in traffic. And by the next morning, or even by that night, my legs can be really tight, and especially my hamstrings and my glutes and my calves, and the Theragun for me has been an amazing way to just have my body feel better. And I, I don't know what I'd do without it. And I just tried the all new Gen 4 Theragun, which has a proprietary brushless motor that's so quiet you'll wonder if it's on. And you know, since I've gone through the generations of Theragun, they did used to be a lot louder. To the point of where sometimes the whole gym could hear if you were using it but now i can do it at night i can watch tv or listen to a podcast or whatever and the new motor is super quiet and the gun works amazingly well it has all the power and amplitude and effectiveness of all their guns I just love it. So I'm glad they're sponsoring us. And whether or not you're an elite athlete or just someone that needs a little muscle therapy every now and then for relaxation or to make you feel better, Theragun is something you have to try. So what they're offering for our listeners is that you can try Theragun for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need. And it starts at only $199. Just go to theragun.com slash off-camera right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash camera. Once again, that's theragun.com slash camera. Now back to the show. So as The Office went on and other people are working on other shows mm-hmm. and you know it's the end is coming, you made a deal to develop your own show, like it, within your contract, right? Within my
1: contract. So for you, for Universal, right, to write right. a show.
0: So uh, I want to talk about this because because it's interesting that you chose to portray an OBGYN mm-hmm. on the Mindy project, mm-hmm. and that's what your mom did. Yeah. And I was curious about the timing of that, like because I would imagine when when you think about, okay, now I'm, you know, I, I've written for The Office for eight seasons, I can make any show I want. I can like. You can conceive any show you want, do mm-hmm. anything you want. What made you decide, like ultimately, that the best place for your next project was going to be set in the world of an OB/GYN, living, in, you know, in New York? And
1: well, I think I had had a sort of, I felt I had seen a lot in movies, bad movies, a lot of like girl who works the magazine, or girl right. who works the bakery, you know, like, and, and I thought it, it felt. Um, as like a cynical comedy writer, it just felt like those are just so um, expected. it it is sort of like girly in a way that's like not like funny, like hard joke funny. And I thought there's something great. I, I one of my one of my favorite performances in any TV show is Hugh Laurie in House. Yeah, because he's such a dick, but he has so many problems, and he has like he's an addict too. And like what's so great about him is he's a doctor and he's helping people. So, he has this very economical way of redeeming his character every episode because he's being really mean and he's, and then at the end he's like helping the pe- helping a little girl, you know, with some horrible medical problem and I thought that is a good trick because I don't want to play a I don't want to because so many of the lead female characters in like the early 90s on these shows are just the the blah straight man woman. Right. Who is there to dissuade the guys from going on the road trip or she's having sensible the bad idea. And she's she's nice sensible and, and nice. Yeah. Um I mean think of how far things have changed between like now like now it's like there's Veep and Amy Schumer and girls and all these in Broad City and all these other shows right. I mean but this is like a desert for female leads in shows. And I was like, "Oh no, no, no. I I love Basil Fawlty. I love Steve Carell and, and as Michael Scott. I am not make doing that trick. Yeah. Where like I'm not writing myself the best part, and so I thought I'd make her a doctor because then I could do more stuff, and it's 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 worked as a trick. <laughs> it yeah. Really
0: does. Well, you're in your fifth season, but but did you, were you able to sort of bounce it off your mom as you were? see Conce- you know I mean obviously it's not like you're going to her to say how do I do this but
1: you know I um, so my mom passed away before I wrote the pilot and so I was think, still thinking about it and working on it Oh, but um, she'd passed away uh, right around that time and I remember thinking and very clearly is I uh, I loved growing up with an OBGYN means that you've kind of done through your whole life just like a lot of like research on it just by living with one and for me then because it was such a tough time too to have to work on this pilot while my mom was sick but I remember thinking like I why am I making this harder for myself you know like because at that time I had when I was working on the pilot I'd actually moved back home to be with my mom when she was sick and I thought like you know what I don't want to like have to research like what an, you know, what a, an art gallery or whatever these jobs are that, you know, these random jobs I'm not interested in. I know what, what Juan's lifestyle is like. I lived with her. I know the hours and I think it's cool. I think it's like kind of a noble job. Yeah, um,
0: you're delivering babies. You're She's delivering babies. It's super
1: exciting. And so I just kind of pulled the trigger on it and I was like, "Okay, that's what her job is." And then um, I knew how to write a workplace show, yeah. in the office. So I just kind of just like Frankensteined all these like things that I knew about into something that felt like I could write about it a lot.
0: Did it feel like a tribute to your mom at all?
1: It's, it's such a good question. I think my mom would have thought she's so different than that character, but I think she would have liked a lot of the observations about the, the that lifestyle a lot. Um, and she would have really liked, No, uh, you know, I think my tribute to my mom will probably be like a movie or a book I write about her because she was such a fascinating person um, and a really serious person with a, an incredibly funny, funny streak. I mean, she was such such a well-regarded doctor in Bo- the Boston area and her patients loved her. But I think the she would have thought the show was funny um, and like frivolous and, uh, and she would have like, liked my outfits. But I think the tribute to my mom will probably be something else.
0: Well, you know what I love that you said about it was that, you know, you said that it's called the Mindy Project. It's not called the Indian Girl Project. <laughs> and I think that your legacy can partially can be that you didn't feel like you had to create a show where you come to Manhattan and, and the show is about you learning how to fit in you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like and it shows how, how far television has come and i think that that to make a mainstream comedy that works across ages and you know the sexes and everything that i would think would be the thing that your parents would be the most proud of was that that you managed to make a comedy that that works for everybody you know what i mean that mm-hmm. doesn't have to play to some idea of what you're supposed to be
1: that's such a nice thing to say and i think they i definitely think my parents would have, would have liked that. It's tough. I think it's a little sad. I think now that as much as there has been a lot of progress, particularly for women yeah. in, on TV shows and, in, and in, even within that and on comedy TV shows, it's as a minority, as a dark-skinned minority person, more often than not, in order to get a show on the air, it has to be like what your overt deal is. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, if you're a minority, it has to be about, like, the minority going through that itch, that situation. And I don't know, like, I think there's more than, you know, people are obsessed with your otherness, even if you aren't, you know? And, and I think trying to balance that while not, de- like, denying who what my roots are, I also don't want to rely on it for all the source of all my inspiration. Um, Is it
0: like when you get into it and you start, like, almost, almost getting to this point reveals how much more that there is to go right
1: yeah i st- i think like very slowly but surely like we're those things are changing in that regard too
0: yeah also it must be for you it must be you know to go from like you said number 12 on the call sheet in the office mm-hmm. to number 1 i mean you probably saw yourself more as a writer on the office right than a performer
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: and now i'm i'm sure like like i watched middle of season 4 like, there's some heavy dramatic acting going on. It's it, mm-hmm. it, it, like you've definitely crossed over into some territory that we could go for hours about the marriage plot and flipping that script and, mm-hmm. and what you've done on your show. But, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, maybe the, the personal growth that you've made through this show as an actor. And, and, yeah, and if sure. that part sometimes gets sort of undermined by, by the, the story that we're talking about, there are the, the topics of race and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was I knew especially when the show moved to Hulu, where we did not have the same pressure to be like, "Hey, make sure the show's cheerful all the time," because we're going to be throwing to a Dove commercial and like people need to want to want to buy soap. Right. We can't like bum people out about like how a marriage isn't working or that two people who are in in love but extremely different can clash, which is a lot about what season four was. Yeah. And it was so good about. Coming to Hulu is that we were like, okay, well, guess what? Like, we get to show the realities of what it's like when you know two people uh, who are very uh, attracted to each other and are very good for each other in a lot of ways um, are together, and they have a kid, and what comes up when that happens. And the great thing is, I was acting with Chris Messina, who is like one of the best actors in the world. I mean, uh, he's just such a like such a, I mean he just has made me such a better actor just by acting with him. You know, he just like raised the bar and I think um being able to do that was was great because I think a lot of times I I've been I've been in TV for 10 years and I was yeah. like well Don't I have control over this show? Now we're on Hulu, we can do whatever we want. The episodes can be as long as we want them to be. I want to taste what it'd be like if we were shooting like a movie. And sometimes in a movie, there's parts where people are really upset and crying and dealing with hard things and saying harsh things to each other. And we can let it breathe because we're not on a network anymore. And we can throw to a commercial and it doesn't have to be cheerful. And that was such a rewarding experience for me as a writer. And certainly as an actor, but to be able to write myself that stuff, write him that stuff, um, it really like unblocked me in a lot of ways and made me be like, wow, okay, well, now I have, uh, now I want to do this more.
0: I feel like you've you've taken some chances with it that mm-hmm. makes it way more interesting than than maybe even the original expectations for it.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure, and I. I think you can never give the lead everything that she wants because then like who would want to watch that? I want to watch like strivers and people who are just always looking for, and if this is a girl who just wants to be skinny, married to like a rich man, and have like you know three children and be a millionaire, it's like, and and also dress in great clothes. It's like, well, you can only give her like two of those things. (laughs) Like life is hard for everybody. And um, I think life is hard doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be funny and if most people live their their daily lives every day being like i enjoy my life i think it's i think it's good but it is really fucking hard i think that that's an okay thing to show in a comedy show even when when the girl is wearing like you know uh, incredible clothes and haute couture and has a great job and lives in a great apartment like it's i think that we like to see that reflected we like to see people go through trials you know and um it can be super funny along the way, but I, I think then you root for the character. So yeah. it's just kind of a, a, nice, uh, a, a nice tool to, to just use.
0: <laughs> well, listen, your story and the way you created your own path is really inspiring to me. And I think that anyone who's endeavoring any creative career could look at what you did and say she did not wait for someone to give her an opportunity. She made her own opportunity. And I think... Those are my favorite kind of artists to talk to because when you make your own opportunity, you can't help but be original. And what you've done, the the books you've written, the shows you've created, they're inspiring not just to women, but to anyone who wants to have an original creative life. Thank you. Yeah, and so thanks for sharing this stuff with me and and also for, you know, for your writing and and I think one of the one of the things I want to close on is that you love your parents and you didn't have to stray so far and rebel and go crazy and like you have this moral code i think that that has served you well in this very alternative world of comedy and yeah. i don't know it's it's just your story's impressive and and um
1: that's so nice of you because i have met a lot of comedians i've been interviewed by a lot of comedians where there's this outdated viewpoint of of uh, this feeling that you have to be desperately unhappy and have had a, like a kind of a bad relationship with your family or everyone around you growing up, and to if be you funny. don't, to be funny. And if you don't do that, if you don't uh, express that in your art, or if you didn't experience that and like want to luxuriate in that, that you're somehow um, not like legit or the real deal. And I love just like breaking that notion because it's outdated, and it's like kind of yeah. I think it's like a residual like from 80s, early 90s road comic mentality and to be perfectly honest I think it's very white and male and I think that if you are the child of the white of male angst the white male angst and if I'm you not don't have it, offense. and if you honest, and, and I'm going to gonna say this with love because so many of my g- closest friends and comrades and um colleagues are white men but I think it's like I, I see it and there's like it's still around and I and I still see it but I just love that there's uh, this new type of comedian that's out there that is completely not this older stereotype
0: yeah no for sure
1: yeah it's okay, like it's, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to like your parents it's okay yeah it's
0: okay to like your parents it's okay to not be on a million you know million prescription painkillers or
1: recreational drugs yeah, yeah. it's yeah. cool how boring how boring <laughs> you're never oh, going to you. use you're never going to use this interview
0: I am it's too boring yeah.
1: <laughs> it wasn't edgy come enough come back
0: when you're high okay thanks for doing this thank and, you so, and, much. Yeah, it was so and, much and fun. for sharing I appreciate it me too so much fun